Thank you. Indeed, it is Galatians 5, so go ahead and turn there. We'll be in Galatians 5, 13 to 26. Well, let me pray for us one more time. Father, we need you anytime we come to your word. Our weakness is revealed. We need you to discern Scripture for us by your Spirit, Father. Would you convict us of sin? Would you show us where we can be aligned more with your gospel? Father, give us this day our daily bread, for this is the bread that you've provided for us from your word, not the words of my mouth, but from your word. Father, give us humility under the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in 2012, a 29-year-old man named David Austin made the leap to off-grid living. He wanted to prove that he could live independently of other people for a whole year. So he ventured off into the Scottish Highlands on December 29th. Tragically, Austin survived just a few days. Officially, he died of overexposure and hypothermia. But in the action that led to his death, Austin reflects a lot of our modern mindset, namely that we don't need other people and that we're strong enough to survive without others on our own. Well, the recent pandemic has only inflamed that situation, hasn't it? It's made us lonelier than ever and more inclined in some cases to pull away rather than to push in. Well, that trend's been going on a while in the American church. Uh, 63% of Americans claim to be Christians, yet only 24% of those attend church on a regular basis. And in Maine, that number is 2.2% of evangelical Christians attend church. Christianity Christianity has truly become the off-grid religion of the United States. We're more apt to pull away in the American Christian church rather than to push in. Well, that's not the way that God intended it to be. See, life in the community of believers should be the norm. It's not to be neglected, but so much more, even meant to picture the way that we are loving God Himself. See, in Galatians, Paul calls a church back to hope in the gospel. They're a church that's turned from the gospel, and they've turned to the law as their chosen means to please God. And in the process, they have lost their love for each other. And Paul calls them to live as the loving community of people of God because of the gospel. He tells them that the body, the church, is given to them as a grace to reveal how the gospel is being applied and apprehended in their life. In short, he tells them that if you're comparing yourself to others, if you're dealing harshly with others, if you're pulling away from others in the church, then you're not living in light of the gospel. And in this way, Paul shows us that the way that you handle those relationships is a direct picture of how you love God. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor 
as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Paul calls us back to the church and more specifically, a love for the church in this text, showing us that if we do not love others, we're not living in light of a love for God that comes from the gospel. So I ask you, how well do you do at loving others? Do you believe that loving others is important? Or do you view them as an obstacle? Or maybe a tool that you can use for self-gratification or to have your needs met in some way? Are you finding yourself more inclined to lean into the church or to lean away from it? You know, when Jesus is asked in the Gospels what the most important law is by the religious leaders of his day, he tells them that the most important commandment is to love God with all that they are. But he doesn't stop there. He says that the second is like it, that you would love your neighbor as yourself. And these two commands echo Paul's flow of thought throughout chapter 5 of Galatians. In the first half, we see the primary work of obedience is loving God and that loving God is the work of the gospel. And then as we advance to the second half, our text this morning, 5.13 to 26, we see that loving God then directly corresponds to a love for the church. That loving God directly corresponds to a love for the church. Well, if you have a bulletin, then you received an outline. You're welcome to follow along with me as I go through that. Feel free to fill in the blanks as we go because Paul shows us how that works in at least three ways in our text. Number one, loving others indicates a love for God. Loving others indicates a love for God. You know, some things can run the risk of being so well known that we never really understand their meaning at all. Songs can be a great example of this. The popular ones can get played and played and we think that we know the lyrics, but we never really understand them. Take, for example, 1972's Elton John song, Hold Me Closer, Tony Danza. Do you know that song? (laughs) Or maybe that 1969 Credence Clearwater revival song, The Bathroom's on the Right. Are you familiar with that one? You hear those songs a thousand times, but you'll never understand them if you get the lyrics wrong. 
And if you pull them out of their context, obviously that's not what those songs are called. But if you don't understand the lyrics, you'll never understand the song. And the fruit of the Spirit, is what we often call this passage, runs that same risk. It's a well-known passage. Do you know the song? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. I'm a good singer, I know. Uh, Maybe you know the song, but Paul didn't suddenly come to Galatians chapter 5 and decide to pen a song about the fruit of the Spirit. It comes as a part of the larger argument here, and contextually, it's all framed around loving others. Look back at the text. In verse 13, he says, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another... Watch out that you're not consumed by one another. And then we get to the fruit of the flesh, and then we see the fruit of the Spirit. And then Paul frames the other end of this passage with verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. See, that's an interpretive clue for us, that the the fruit of the Spirit operates within the confines of human relationships. And the specific relationship that Paul has in view here is how you're relating to the local church. This chapter started with the way that you love God, and it ends with the necessary fruit of loving His people. That makes sense, doesn't it? After all, God loves His people, and if you love God, so will you. If I love God, I will love others. And I cannot love God without loving his people any more than I can love my wife without loving her personality. Or to use a particularly New England illustration, any more than I can love the New England Patriots without loving Tom Brady. You see the point. That means that your love for God will not remain private. Just as loving your wife means loving all of her, so loving God means loving what he loves. And it means that your love of God is displayed in the community of believers, which means that you need to be in the community of believers in order to see this fruit. That matches the testimony of all of Scripture. Jesus says, Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm sorry, John says that rather. Jesus says this, you, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. That means that you must be in the community of believers in order to see this fruit displayed, which means, church, that Maine needs churches that Maine needs the local church in order for the gospel to be displayed. Men need to go out and make healthy local churches for the gospel to be made visible. The fruit of loving God is first a love for his people. That's what Paul is saying. Loving God indicates a love for God. But that reality implies something important, doesn't it? Because number two, loving others is impossible without a love for God. Loving others is impossible without a love for God. You know, pastors and preachers make sensational claims all the time. Don't ignore this one. That's a sensational claim, that loving others is impossible without a love for God. 
Sensational, yes. Untrue, no. No, if loving others directly corresponds to our love for God, then the inverse must be true. And I believe that's what Paul is saying. Look at Paul's argument in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. See, Paul compares the fruit of the Spirit to the fruit of the flesh in this passage. He says that the fruit of the flesh leads to all sorts of ways in which we do not love each other. There's enmity, there's strife, there's jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, envy, and divisions. We can see all those things would cause us not to love one another. But then there's sexual immorality, there's idolatry, there's sorcery. And Paul says that all of that compromises and kills the way that you love others. He's saying that the flesh is contrary to the spirit. That means that that fruit of the flesh kills our love for others. And that's the only thing that the flesh can produce. That makes it true then, at least according to Scripture, that just as we're born with desires in sin that oppose God, so we're born opposing others and not loving them. But is that true to life? Well, the old example is children, right? No one teaches children to be naughty, to take things from each other, to bite each other, to scratch, to get what they want. They're not angels, are they? They're walking bags of sin. They're fun. You love them, right? But you know that they're naughty. You know that they're wicked at heart. And the truth is I probably have more of them than you, so you can't argue with me. (laughs) But by the way, they grow up, don't they? And they grow up to be you and I. And those childlike sins of stubbornness over bedtime and selfishness with toys, they blossom as an adult into sexual immorality and idolatry and everything else that Paul mentions here. And no one has to teach you to be that way. You wake up desiring sexual immorality and idolatry. You wake up with enmity and envy and strife and jealousy, prone to anger. All of these are the fruit of the flesh, natural to us. No one puts those things on. And while you may be able to contain some of those outcomes without a love for God, they leak out of you, like trying to hold water in your hands because we have a craving for what the flesh gets us. It gets us gratification. It gets us acceptance, perceived peace, all of which we apply within our relationships. But relationships without a a love for God are built upon our own benefit. Maybe you say that's not me, or, or maybe you think I'm oversimplifying. Well, the reality is that it's common to spiritualize our desires and our relationships. We can see a path, looks good to us, feels good, It can even be reasonably good by our own standard. However, the desires of the flesh and the spirit are opposed from each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And you want to do those things of the flesh, naturally. No one has an exception in this way. You have fleshly desires that are contrary to the spirit. They're not weak desires either, are they? They're strong desires. Desires that seem to be in your self-interest, 
They tend to run against the good pleasure of God's will. They can be desires to resist pressing into the church. Maybe they make the excuse that, well, the church is a mess, or, or maybe in the interest of my health, I'm going to keep my distance. We cannot assume, though, that the independent machinations are, of our hearts are of the best interest to our spiritual life, nor can we automatically apply them as if they're sanctified. You may think that naturally you're a loving person without God, but Paul says that your flesh is manipulative and self-seeking. And you are far from virtuous in the flesh. You're more like Lenny Small from Of Mice and Men. Do you remember Lenny Small? He's an imposing character. He has a big frame. He dreamed of having a ranch of rabbits, though, because he loved rabbits and he loved to pet them. Unfortunately, Lenny Small could not control his own strength, however, and he killed everything that he touched. And when he tried to pet rabbits, he could only kill them. Well, in your flesh, you are like Lenny Small. For all your good intentions, you can only destroy, says Paul. You want to love, but you have only the capacity to destroy in the flesh. Take, for example, as a case study, the way that the world tries to love. It expresses love as affirmation. The fleshly world affirms the homosexual lifestyle, and they call that love. But that lifestyle is a catastrophe. It's a lifestyle that leads to death. To affirm it is to kill and not to love. And only the Spirit, only by the Spirit, can we love graciously and pointedly with the gospel. That's what all of our best efforts look like in loving others but they can't be love. They're only an attempt to gain something from others. But by the Spirit, we have a new nature. One that comes through the gospel and is applied by the Spirit as we live in light of that gospel. Only in that nature can you truly love others because it is only the only one capable of loving God. So we walk by the Spirit with intention in the application of that gospel. And then and only then will you love others. And the evidence of gospel deficiency or depletion in your life is when you become users of others. The gospel is not taking root. Loving others indicates a love for God. Loving others is impossible without loving God. And third, loving others is visible when we are loving God. Loving others is visible when we are loving God. Paul continues in verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. 
Paul is saying here that the love that you have for your neighbor comes from the gospel, that gospel work of loving God. But that love is not a mushy, nostalgic type of love. It's not as a locket that you wear around your neck that no one ever sees. But love manifests, Paul says, in tangible ways. In verse 21, He says that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Saying that what you do is directly reflective of your love for God. That's Paul's platform in Galatians. Amid the discussion on the heart of the gospel as being the active rest in God, resting in the work of Jesus Christ and not the inheritance of our own works, Paul now says that this is what you do. This is the result of that gospel faith. We don't do this because we're trying to earn God's favor, but because the evidence of a life lived in the application of God's favor manifests in these particular ways. When I am a son of God, delighted in and fulfilled by the spiritual revelation of my need for a Savior, and I find that satisfaction in Jesus Christ, I will stop seeking that application in someone else. I stop using people in my relationships. And my love for God transforms my relationships into genuine and pure, loving relationships. That's proof that the gospel has taken root. I bought a car recently. Before I bought that car, I I shopped for a car for a long time. And I needed a car that met several criteria. I needed a car that would be big enough for my family I needed it to have a certain mileage on it so that it wasn't too many, and I needed it to fit within a certain budget. Those were the three parameters of buying a car. And I drove around locally, and I searched many dealerships in the area, and I found nothing. And so I went to auto websites. I went to autotrader.com, and I looked there for a car. Couldn't find anything. I went to cars.com, and there it was. One day, I finally found the right one. And when I found it, I was glad to buy it because it fit all the criteria. It was big enough. It had the right mileage. It was the right price. And the next day, when I woke up, do you know what I didn't do? I didn't search for a car again. And the reason I didn't is because I had found what I was looking for. That car satisfied the three needs that I had in a car. Well, the gospel works the same way. When you truly find the gospel... It satisfies all your needs and the searching stops. You have believed that the gospel checks all the boxes of your most pressing needs and you end your search. You don't have to use others for sexual immorality, for impurity, for idolatry, and on and on and on. Your needs are met in Christ, the satisfier of your soul. And if you continue to search after that, then either the gospel is defective or you haven't bought the gospel. So where's the problem? Is the gospel defective? Is it bad news that's been miscategorized for 2,000 years of church history? Has the church been wrong about the gospel? Have men gone to their death through misidentification? Or is it more likely that the gospel isn't meeting your needs because you haven't bought the gospel in its full breadth.
Paul says that you don't know the breadth of the gospel if it hasn't affected your relationships. If you continue to do sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, and so on. See, it's not advice to straighten up from these things. It's the spiritual application of the good news of Christ's satisfaction in God that keeps you satisfied in God and away from gratification in these other areas. Boy, we love lists, don't we? I love a good list. I love something I can check myself against. And a list is nice because I can see specific ways in which I display that love for God, specific ways that we do not display our love for God. The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit that comes from the gospel is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When I'm totally loved and accepted, when I'm satisfied in the gospel, when I'm at peace with God and so on, those things come out of me and they're displayed as I interact with others. But I so badly want to turn those things into a list of things that I do and do not do, into some kind of righteousness works system that I must be this or be that. The truth is when I'm believing the gospel, when I'm trusting Jesus to meet all my needs, those things will flow out of me. Paul Tripp uses this simple illustration. He says, when, when your cup of water spills, what comes out? Well, water does. But, but why water? Why does water come out of the cup of water? Well, because that's what's in the cup, right? Well, when you're in the church, your cup is often spilled. What comes out? Is it love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? How do you respond when that happens? Do you work at it? Do you strive to just grit it out and be joyful in the face of that? Church, if that's not what comes out when your cup is spilled, don't grit it out. Go back to the gospel. The good news that Jesus has overcome every obstacle that keeps you from enjoying God forever. The response of the fruit of the Spirit is not to go and try to be more loving, to try to be more joyful in your own strength, to try to be more peaceable and so on to clench your fists and do it, the answer is to turn back to the gospel and believe all that is true about what Christ has accomplished for you. That you owed a sin debt before God that you could not pay. That you owed death to God for your sin. And that God paid that debt through the blood of Jesus. Put your faith in that. And when you put your faith in that, you will see that your most pressing need is met. Trust in that. Go back to the gospel. Well, it's easy to run off the grid like David Austin. When relationships are hard, when we've been wounded, when we don't see fruit in our life. But God has given us the church to show us our love for him and how the gospel is being pressed into our hearts. I urge you, church, do not go off the grid in your relationships. Turn back into the church and consider how the gospel is at work in your life by the way that you're loving Christ's bride, the church. Father, thank you for this wonderful gift that we have in the church. 
thank you that you have given it to us as a display of the gospel and a display of how the gospel is being worked out in our lives. Help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is you who works, Father, both to work and to will for your good pleasure. Thank you for your church in Jesus' name. Amen.